right, so good morning again. Here we go. Acts chapter 1, we're in this book. We just started last Sunday, so if you weren't with us last Sunday, that's all right. You're not missing much. Let me just recap where we've been um, real quickly. Acts is a book of history. It's a book that records the history of the early church, the first roughly three decades, 30 years of the, the church's mission from the time of Christ's ascension into heaven uh, in about AD 33, roughly. We, those are kind of guessing numbers somewhat, but that's the best guess we have. And this, this book carries us all the way through to about AD 64, thereabouts. And, and so for 30 years, we get a glimpse of the history of the early church, what the church did, how they focused on things, what their priorities were, all of those good things we get to, to see. It shows us how the church was formed. It shows us what they, they cared about. And of course, there's lots of things we glean uh, and learn about the church today through that. Not everything in the book of Acts has to be replicated exactly as it appears in Acts, because again, this is history. It's description. It's not necessarily prescription, meaning they're not prescribing everything. For example, we'll get to it uh, later on, but uh, at some point in the book of Acts, we see that the apostle Paul has this handkerchief that performs miracles and heals people who touch the handkerchief. Now that's what happened. It's a historical fact but we don't need to start handkerchief ministries in the church, right? And that's, that's kind of where we're going to navigate through this. But we're seeing what did happen and learning as we go on what needs to be continuing and, and improving and growing in our church and our, in our lives as well. So uh, we started the book last week. All we looked at in the first 11 verses was the Great Commission, meaning that Jesus commissions his disciples, his apostles, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and the finished work that Jesus accomplished through the cross and resurrection to the whole world, beginning in Jerusalem, spreading out to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that's how Jesus structures the mission uh, that he's given his apostles and his disciples, his followers, his learners to, to do. And so that's actually the structure of the book of Acts in a nutshell. It starts in Jerusalem. That's where they, they are right now in, in our passage today. And eventually they'll spread out to Judea and then to Samaria. But by chapter nine, they've pretty much brought the gospel or at least the message of the gospel to those places. And then by chapter nine onward, it's a journey to the nations, to the whole world. And so to the end of the earth. And that's where we, we start to see the apostle Paul and his his journey there. So that's the basic structure of Acts. Jesus is commissioning them, and then he ascends into heaven. He is go, he's gone up into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. And where we are right now is kind of this awkward stage. There's about roughly 10 days between Jesus's ascension into heaven and the descension of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a waiting period where the, where the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had promised to send them, but he hasn't sent the Holy Spirit yet. That happens in chapter two. And so we'll look at that event next week. But right now we're in this period of time where Jesus is gone, he's in heaven. The Holy Spirit hasn't come down to lead them yet. And what are they doing? That's, that's basically what this, this passage shows us. It hap shows us what happens in that period of time. 
it's a relatively short period of time and um, not a whole lot happens, but there's one big thing that gets recorded in uh, this section. And so we're going to walk through it together. And basically what I want to do is just kind of trudge through the passage, talk about what's happening, and then I want to kind of focus on how we can learn from this or apply these things or what principles maybe are coming out of it. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Um, look at with me at verse 12. Uh, 12 through 14 is kind of the first section here. It says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, also known as the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus ascended into heaven from, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they, were, uh, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Okay, so basically here's what's happening. Jesus has gone up into heaven and his disciples have been told you got to go make disciples, but the Holy Spirit's going to descend upon you at, uh, at some point. Stay in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, just hang in there. And then once the Spirit is there to empower you to be my witnesses, then you're off to the races. So this passage shows us that they returned to Jerusalem as they were told. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and stay there until the Spirit comes. So they're obedient here. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. They're going back to Jerusalem They were on the Mount of Olives. Now they're walking about a day's journey. It takes about a day, a Sabbath day's walk from Olivet to Jerusalem. They get there. They go to the upper room, not just a upper room. It is the upper room. So this is probably the same space that they had been using uh, just before Jesus' death for the institution of the Lord's Supper, the washing of the disciples' feet, Jesus kind of teaching through his his uh, upper room discourse where he's giving them the final instructions about the Holy Spirit and what he will do for them. Uh, And that's just a beautiful section of the Gospels. But they're back in this room all together and we get a list of who's there. We get the list of the 12 apostles minus one, uh, as we're going to see that 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 becomes the issue here is that there's one less apostle. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot, is gone Uh, and we're going to see how that happened in this passage, kind of in gruesome detail in some ways. But uh, there we are. We're going to see how that plays out. But the 11 remaining apostles, the original guys that Jesus called to follow him and and sending out to make disciples further, they're all there, along with some other people. Uh, we see a group of women there as well. We see Mary, Jesus' mom, is there. This is the last time Mary is ever mentioned in the Bible, which is interesting uh, in the New Testament. This is the last picture, but what we see of Mary is that she's there with the disciples. She's following Jesus as Lord. And we see his brothers. His brothers we meet in the Gospels. This is an interesting little thing because the brothers of Jesus, Mary's Mary and Joseph's other children, right? Jesus was conceived through the Holy Spirit, miraculous birth. 
Uh, but Mary and Joseph went on to have more children. We don't know how many. We know multiple children, um, but we don't know how many siblings he had. However, he had siblings. And his siblings, when he was doing his public ministry, did not believe in him. They thought he was crazy. There was a scene in one of the gospels where Jesus is teaching and crowds are surrounding him and his mother and his brothers come to confront him. Mainly, I think, his brothers. His mom was probably there to keep the peace like moms do, right? But the brothers come and they're trying to take Jesus out of the crowd because they're going, he's nuts. Let's get him back home. Uh, Let's help him out here. He's making a fool of himself. But then what happens? Jesus dies and is raised to life and the resurrection convinces his own brothers of who he was. And so they're there. That's exciting. That's really cool. And so here you have this group of people. In total, we see in verse 15, the total number of people in this room is 120. It's a big room probably, Um, but there's 120 people, the 12 or 11 apostles, the the group of women that were with Jesus, his brothers, and probably a, a bunch of other people that loved and followed Christ. So what are they doing in the upper room? Well, we're told in verse 11 that they are with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. They are praying together. They are in unity. They're, they're working together and, and praying together and they're united. And what they're praying for, we don't know. They doesn't say what they're praying for. Probably that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. That's probably what they're praying for. But they're devoting themselves to that act of prayer and an accord or unity together. Okay, so that's the scene. Let's look at verse 15 through 20. It says this, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Okay, now verse 16 and 17, uh, excuse me, uh, 18 and 19, I'm sorry, uh, is a a parenthesis that now Luke, who's writing Acts, is giving us some background. So he kind of cuts off Peter's speech, gives us some background, and then he's going to pick up where Peter left off. So 18 and 19 tells us what Peter's talking about. It says, now this man, Judas Iscariot, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, the 30 pieces of silver that he betrayed Christ with or for. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's pleasant. And uh, it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. And that is, that's translated as field of blood. Okay, so... What we're being told here is um, really what Matthew tells us as well, that Judas, after betraying Christ, uh, goes on and takes his own life. He takes his life out of uh, whether it's remorse or shame, or we're really not given a whole lot of detail about his inner thoughts, but we know he goes and he he hangs himself. And here (laughs) we're told that it got real gross in there, okay? And so... uh, how all, why we have to be told all that, I don't know. But it's in the text, it's Holy Scripture, so there we go. Um, basically, Peter is addressing the crowd because Judas 
is, was, was one of them. He was allotted a share in the ministry. He was called by Christ. He betrays Christ. He takes his own life. And now there's a vacancy. And that's, that's what Peter's addressing here. He says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Spirit spoke, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So David wrote the Psalms, but the Holy Spirit actually inspired the words. And, and he's basically Peter's saying that the Psalms address this issue with Judas. This, there was a foretelling of this through the book of Psalms. Verse 20, let's pick it up. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Here's where, here's where Peter is getting this. It says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Yeah, so that's, a, that's one verse he pulls out to say, this is why Judas did this thing. And it, he quotes another Psalm, which says, let another take his office. So Peter's taking these two Psalms and he's going, look, we, we've got to deal with this Judas thing. Let's keep, let's go, let's go to verse, uh, let me see if I needed to say anything else. Nope, I think I'm good on that. Okay, verse 21 then, to, uh, let's read a little bit more. Still Peter speaking. So one of the men who have, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become uh, with us a witness to his resurrection. All right, so if you're not tracking, this is basically what's happening. Judas is gone. There's a vacancy. There were 12 apostles. Now there's 11. And Peter goes, the Bible is giving us instructions here. We need to replace Judas and, and fill his role. We need to choose someone to take that place. And so here he is, and he's basically giving some criteria for how to go about doing that. He says, we need to find someone who's been with us from the very beginning, since the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, all the way to the ascension. He's like, we got to find someone who's been a witness to all of these things from beginning to end and can, and can be one of the witnesses to the resurrection. And so they're, they're trying to navigate through this and figure out uh, who should take this position. All right, let's keep, let's keep going. Verse 24, uh, for 23, excuse me. It says, they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. I don't know what it is with these guys. They have so many names. It's, it's crazy. Okay, so Joseph, but also could be Barsabbas, but also could be Justice. Okay, that guy, that's one guy. Okay, that's one person we're talking about. And Matthias. Oh, thank goodness, a guy who has just one name. Okay, cool. Matthias and Justice Barsabbas and or Joseph, depending on what you want to call him. Okay, these two guys are put up as the guys who fit the criteria. They were the guys from this 120, this whole group of 120 people. Those were the two guys that they're like, you know what? If this is the criteria, someone who was there at the baptism of Jesus and, all, and there all the way to the end, to the uh, ascension of Jesus, these are the two guys that fit that criteria. Okay, so they've got the two choices. And at verse 24 says, they prayed and said, here we have the prayer that they pray, 
written down for us. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they stop and they pray for wisdom. They pray for God to reveal to them which of these two should take the place of Judas. And then verse 26, and they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So they pray, and then after they pray, they cast lots, which is not something we're real familiar with. We might consider it flipping a coin, rolling dice. There was, a, there was probably a more formal way back in those days that they did this. Um, but they asked God to show them through the casting of lots which of these two guys should be Judas's replacement. Now, this is kind of a weird thing, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, Chris and I were talking about this this week, is that this passage is difficult because I'm not exactly sure if they should have done this or not. They were told, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. That's what Jesus told them to do. Now, they may not be doing anything wrong here. A lot of commentators think they're doing something right. And a lot of commentators are like, I don't know, this seems kind of weird. Like, what are they doing? Why are they? This could just be Peter being Peter, right? He's the, he's the impulsive one. So maybe Peter's just like, all right, guys, we got to do this now. And, and who, who knows if this is right? I'm not going to take a hard stance on that because I just honestly don't know. Uh, I, I think at the beginning of the week, I had a harder stance and then I was corrected by these other people and I was like, okay, I, I'm just going to leave it at this. Okay, this is what happened. It's what happened. Whether it was the right thing for them to do or the wrong thing for them to do or, or if it was just a neutral thing, that's, that, I'll have to ask Jesus about that when I get to heaven. Okay, but in the meantime, we see it is regardless of any of that. It is what they did. And, and I don't think that they were doing anything out of bad motives. No question about their motives. Their motives were good. Uh, they, I think they were trying to do the best they could with what they understood. And given that they're in a period of time where the Holy Spirit has not yet descended upon them, they're working uh, off of um, less information than they will have in just a matter of days from now. But what they're doing is really what they think is right. That's, that's, I think that's good. I think they're trying to be obedient to the Lord. They're taking the scriptures and saying, the scriptures say this, so we should probably fill this office. And they don't know any other way to choose between the people that they have put up in front of them, so they cast lots. And casting lots is not some weird pagan thing. It was very common practice in the Old Testament Israel. It, it was very commonly done. It was a way that the, the priesthood in the, in the sacrificial system determined which of the two goats on the Day of Atonement would be the scapegoat and which would be the sacrifice. They just basically flip a coin, right? And it's like, well, this goat gets it and this one gets to go free, right? But they, they choose that way through the casting of lots or flipping a coin or whatever we would say in our modern day. In fact, the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, does not discourage the Old Testament people of God from casting lots. In fact, 1633 says, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And so there is biblical precedent for what they're doing 
in rolling the dice between Matthias and, and uh, Justice. Uh, and they're, they're doing the best that they can with the information they have. But the question is, is do we cast lots today? Well, I think the answer to that is no, not generally, because they, in this period of time, did not have the Spirit of God. They do, in the next section of the, of the, of the book of Acts, just in the next verses, we're going to read how they get the Holy Spirit, and then they never cast lots again, at least not ever recorded that way. Now, again, not everything they did, thought, or, or, or um, said is all recorded down. That would be a book way too long to have in our Bibles, right? If, every, if somebody was literally writing down everything you said, thought, or believed, you, we wouldn't have enough paper to, to, to fill that up, right? So this is a summary of things that happened. But, but it's important to see it, it's never again, no other decision is made through the casting of lots after the Spirit comes. Okay, so, so that's, take that for what it is. Um, but, but I think that this passage does give us some important things to think through in our lives, especially as it relates to how we make decisions. See, we do have the Spirit of God. We're on that side of the, the day of Pentecost. So we don't have to go through the steps the exact way they do in this period of time where they're kind of in this awkward middle road between Jesus being in heaven and the Spirit not being in their hearts. But the principles, I think, that draw out of here are good for us to consider. They are good for us to think through because every single person in the world has to make decisions. We are always confronted with a choice, whether that's something mundane like what we eat for lunch today or whether that's a major decision like whether we buy a home or get married to a person or get a job or move to a different city. We all have big decisions and small decisions. So how do we make those decisions? Because as Christians, we want to be wise and we want to make decisions that ultimately honor the Lord Jesus. We want to be in the will of God. Right? And so I think this passage shows maybe in some ways that aren't exactly how uh, we ought to do it today, but it is showing that the heart of the apostles and the disciples, that, that group of 120 who want to honor the Lord, they want to do what's right. They're trying their best. They have the information that they have and they're working off of what they know. But what they do does give us some good wisdom. So let's, let's just walk through this passage in a broad way of just looking at the, the kind of the markers of their decision-making. How did they go about making this decision? And that's, that's the big question we have to discover. The, the first thing as we think through decision-making, we have to ask ourselves this very crucial question, the first most important question. What is God's revealed will? Meaning, what has God told us clearly about this issue in front of me? Of course, the only way we go to God's, can go to God's revealed will is by going to the scriptures. The Bible is God's revealed will to us. 
The Bible is God's written word. It shows us from front to back. Every page of it contains the words of God for us. And so when we go to make a decision, we first have to ask a fundamental question. What does the Bible say about this? Because the Bible shows us what God wants us to know. And so what we're seeing in this passage is that that is what Peter does. Commendably, that's what Peter does. Peter may be impulsive here. He may be doing something that he could have waited like a few days and figured it out a little differently. But regardless of the timing, he is doing the right thing. He's going to the scriptures. He says that clearly in, uh, in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then he goes on in verse 20 uh, to, to quote from the book of Psalms. And he's using the book of Psalms, although his, his way of doing it is kind of probably not the way we would do it today. And like he's sort of like he's cherry picking two random verses, but let's, let's go with the Holy Spirit's working through him, even though he hasn't descended upon him. He's trying his best to understand the scriptures. And so he's taking the scriptures, what God has clearly shown, and he's making a decision based on that. So for example, in our, in our lives, uh, if we're asking broad questions about what we should do with our lives, like, okay, you need to find a new job as an example. And you don't know where to go for that or which direction God wants you to take or what kind of career you need to enter into. Um, the, the question, what is God's revealed will, will answer at least this question. You should have a job. That question is answered because the Bible calls us to work hard and to provide for ourselves and our family. So that's the that's the big question. If the question is, should I have a job or should I be a lazy person? The answer is you should have a job. You don't need someone to tell you that because the Bible tells you that. Or, or let's go to a relational question. Like let's say you're, if you're married, I know you're not all married, but if you're married, you never have to ask yourself, does God want me to love my wife or respect my husband? You never have to ask that because the Bible tells you, yes, he does. Now, in the specifics, that's where the next question we're going to look at gets us to. But the, the broad issue is, do I continue to love my wife? Do I continue to respect my husband? Do I get a job or do I be lazy? Like those big questions, the scriptures give us answers to. They, they show us what God wants for our life in a big picture way. But most of you are not going to wrestle necessarily with the big picture stuff, right? Because if you know your Bibles, you could go to the Ten Commandments and pretty much run through them and go, okay, well, this is how God would like me to operate in the world. I shouldn't steal and I shouldn't kill people. And those sort of things are all pretty clear. But what about the specifics of life? Because the, the big picture stuff, Peter goes, Judas is gone, the Bible said he would be gone, and the Bible says we should choose someone to take his office. That's big picture. But the specifics of the issue is, well, we've got two guys who fit the bill for this position, but we don't know which one they, it should be. That's the specific question of, okay, does God want me to love my wife, respect my husband? Yes, but what if I don't know who he wants me to actually have as a wife or a husband? 
that's the, that's the more specific question. Who does God want me to marry? And who does God want me to be in that relationship with? Or God wants me to have a job, yes, but, but do I go this direction or that direction? Do I go blue collar or white collar? What, what kind of career path should I take? The specifics are never going to be found in the Bible for you. You can read the Bible front to back and it will never say, Tom Desmond, please do this never going to do that because that's not the point of the Bible. The Bible gives us the big picture of God's work and will in the world, shows us his revealed will for us in broad strokes. So how then do we discern God's concealed will, his, the will, the part of his will that doesn't show us the specifics of the situation? Well, this is where uh, we see in the scriptures their, their their use of wisdom, right? The disciples knew from the scriptures that they should replace Judas, but they didn't know who should take his place. And so they set the criteria. They used wisdom and common sense and, and just basic understanding of, well, if this person's supposed to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection, it should be someone who's seen Jesus be resurrected. That's like, yeah, like kind of common sense, basic stuff but they go through that criteria and they determine who, what, what kind of person should fit this position. And so the specifics of life can be discerned through biblical wisdom and through wise counsel, through common sense in some cases, although maybe we're lacking in common sense, so you should always kind of refer back to other people's wisdom too and, the, and ultimately the scriptures. But is there something that we can work through to think about these specific decisions? And God gives us people to help us with that. He gives you pastors. Chris and I would love to talk with you about decisions that need to be made in your life. Now, we may not know every right answer for you, but we can give you some guidance. That's, that's something we're here for. But you don't need just us. Like you can talk to your godly friends, godly family members. People put, God puts people in your life to help you discern these things. And he gives you also a brain. And that's a good thing. Don't, don't undermine that. God gives you a brain and he helps you to think through this stuff. Okay, now, that's, so step one is, what is God's revealed will? Does the Bible say not to do this or does it clearly command me to do this? If the answer, if you answer those questions, if God's word clearly de dis uh, demands that you don't do something, then you know what the answer is. You don't do it. If God's will, word clearly tells you to do something, then you don't need to ask very far uh, deeper questions. You just do what it tells you to do. But as you get into the specifics of things, you go into discernment through the spirit of God, through other people's wisdom as well. But once we get past those things, this is the crucial part. You've actually got to do something. You've got to do something. And you've got to do something by trusting God's sovereignty. That is what these guys do. Now, whether they should have cast lots for this or not, I, I don't know. But they, at least they do something here. They do cast lots. But they, before they do, they pray that God would use this in their lives to show whom he has chosen. Right, that's 24 and 25. They're asking God to direct their steps to use this thing and, and to help them make the right decision between these two people that they have in front of them. 
And they do, so they do something. They take, an, they take a step, but they're trusting God's sovereignty along the way. And I think that's the crucial thing here. We need to do things rather than do nothing. And I've had lots of conversations over the years with uh, people particularly younger than me, uh, college students or, or people that are in young adulthood. And I think we're seeing a, a, a little bit of a shift culturally or generationally where people are afraid to make decisions. They're like par- paralyzed by it almost. And it's like they need someone just to say, do, do something. Like you can't just sit here treading water. You've got to do something. And, the, and what you do is you ask for wisdom from God's word. If God's word doesn't say you shouldn't do this, then keep moving forward. You get wisdom from others. But, but at the end of the day, you take, a dis, you take a step. You make a decision. You go do it. And you trust that God is going to do with it what he wants. He is going to do with it what he wants. So there's, I, I bet you could pull everybody in this room and, and if we talk through our whole life journey and all the decisions that we've made and we mapped it out, it would be an amazing thing to see how we might go in one direction for a season and then God takes us in a different direction for another season. And ultimately though, he's getting us to where he wants us to be. And, and here, so here's what I say, tell people, you cannot ultimately make a wrong decision if, with the caveat, if you're not sinning deliberately, okay? Then you can make a wrong decision. But if it's not a de- deliberate sin, a disobedience, act of disobedience against God, doing something is what we're called to do. Trusting the Lord, walking forward in obedience and faith and letting him direct us. And he will get us to where he wants us to be. So I, I say this, I, I'm really, I know for those of you who are older in the room, you're going, yeah, okay, I got that, fine. Um, for those of you who are younger in the room, let me just say, make a decision and stick with it and go with it and see what happens. <laughs> Don't be terrified of that. It's a good thing. Trust the Lord. Step out in faith. But there is one thing that we absolutely should not do. There is one thing that this whole story shows us we shouldn't do. And that is, we shouldn't follow our hearts. That's the one thing we shouldn't do. Uh, That's not the advice you get in our modern individualistic age. In fact, a co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, before he died of cancer years ago, spoke at a commencement address for graduating college students. And uh, he said this, there is no reason not to follow your heart. But the Bible actually gives lots of reasons not to follow our heart. So as much as I love his phone, uh, that's that's not the greatest advice in the world. The Bible tells us there's lots of reasons. The, there's one psalm, a uh, proverb rather, Proverbs 28, 26. In the NASB edition version, it says, the one who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but the one who walks wisely will flee to safety. The Bible also tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Your heart and my heart lie to us all the time. 
Why would we want to follow a liar? Don't follow your heart. (laughs) What we do need to do, though, is follow Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart is perfect, and it is gentle and lowly. And he loves us, and he will take us where he wants us to go in his time, in his way, directing our steps as we do take some steps ourselves. We are to do something, yes, but we trust the Lord and we, lo- and we trust that he loves us and he's gonna get us where he wants us to be. But the way we know what Jesus' heart is is through the scriptures. We read the Bible. We follow it. We use wise principles and we, we gain wisdom from others. We seek God's will through prayer and asking for him to give us discernment and peace in decision-making. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we do something and we trust in God's sovereignty to lead us. That is the biblical approach to decision-making. But these guys, these guys were doing their best with what they knew, maybe didn't do everything perfectly, And yet at the end of the day, when the Spirit does come in the next chapter, he's going to blow the lid off of all of this. And this little episode about choosing Matthias to replace Judas is just going to slowly fade away in the background. And we're off to the races to follow Jesus in making disciples. And I'm really excited to continue through this. So in the meantime, let's trust the Lord Let's, let's, do, let's approach the decisions that we encounter this week through the lens of the scriptures, through the lens of wisdom, all of these things that we're learning. But, but ultimately, we have the Spirit of God to be our counselor and point us to Christ and lead us. So let's ask him for his help to do that as we walk through this life. Okay, let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for sending your Spirit to us, which we will see how you did that and accomplished that in the next Uh, sermon next week, but we ask God now that as we uh, think about our own lives and the decisions in front of us and the choices we have to make, uh, would you guide us and lead us? Would you help us to point our hearts to the scripture? Would we be pointed to the heart of Christ? And would you give us the, the grace to make wise choices, but to make choices that will ultimately trust in the sovereignty of God. We, we ask for that help today, and we ask that now as we sing to you in response, as we reflect on the finished work of your Son through the cross and the resurrection, would you draw our hearts to you today and give us uh, what we need for, for life and godliness through, through this text and through um, the whole scriptures that we encounter as we study it. And we, we love you, Lord. We thank you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.